So it's actually kind of simple. Most people are familiar with work. Some are familiar with hard work, real hard work. And those are the people that are typically successful. They work their asses off. There is, however, I'm convinced, another level of output that exists within everybody. However, a small number of people actually gain access to this level of work ethic, to this level of production. For many, it required a significant life-altering event to gain access to this level of production. For me, it was getting my legs shot off by a machine gun. But the thing is, it was there the entire time. My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Tonight, Machine Nick Lavery's in the studio. This guy has an amazing story to tell. Three Purple Hearts, and he's still kicking ass wherever he goes. Nick, welcome into the studio, man. Right on, DJ. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I want to get into this, but I want to kind of go back a little bit before we get into it. And I want to kind of go over your childhood because you seem in everything that I've read about you, everything that I've watched about you, you've always been a competitor. You've never let anything hold you down. So let's start out with maybe not your childhood, but family growing up and what kind of pushed you towards the military service? Yeah, man. So grew up uh, Massachusetts, uh, mostly around the Boston area. And yeah, I, I got into athletics really early on and that was kind of what anchored me and gave me some kind of a direction and some kind of a purpose. Uh, my family and I, we moved every about 18 months. So I was constantly in a new place trying to make new friends, but there were always sports. So I played pretty much everyone under the sun growing up. And, you know, like most kids, I think, you know, running around playing commando in the streets or in the woods, I, I did the same. But I can recall, you know, being drawn to, to that lifestyle, even from a very young age, which drifted away, you know, kind of as I got older. Um, I did start looking at the military more seriously when I was in high school. And I want to say it was my freshman or sophomore year. Um, I actually had a conversation with a Marine Corps recruiter. And... He's like, yeah, man, uh, you know, graduate high school and come on back. So that was kind of a, of a loose course of action I was going off of during my high school years. And then around my junior year and then certainly into my senior year, high school, I started getting looked at to play football in college, which is really the only reason why I went to college to begin with. Uh, so I did that, uh, played D2 ball up at UMass Lowell and, um, you know, sophomore year of college was 9-11. And, you know, even though I was drawn to it as a kid and I was looking at it more seriously in high school, you know, in that moment, uh, everything changed for me as it did for a lot of people. And I really struggled to even just stay in, in school. I knew we were going to war 
and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, I listened to some advisors, some mentors of mine, and I, I ultimately stayed in and finished out my degree. And then at that point is where I started looking at options to enlist. Well, here's my question, because I've heard this from a lot of people. A lot of them go to the Marines first off. What was it about the Marines? They always seem to transition either over, you know, there's there's been a couple guys that went to the Marines and they went Navy, went Navy SEAL. Then guys went over to the Army, went Ranger, Special Forces. What was it about the Marines that was drawing you to them and then ultimately, I guess, away from them? Yeah, I can say exactly what it was, and it was a commercial. And okay. commercial. I just saw it the other day on a video or something. Someone was referencing it, but I can remember it clear as day as a young kid, and this dude, he's climbing this like robotic machine-looking thing, and he climbs to the top, and he, he pulls out a sword, and he takes down this giant fire-breathing dragon, and he snaps around. He's in the Marine Corps Class A uniform, which you know is, is the cleanest, crispest, uniform we have in the united states military i don't care what branch you're in i agree um so you know their marketing campaign was great then and it still is now and in my mind as a kid the marines were the baddest dudes on on planet earth and i wanted to be a part of that what drew me away from it in high school again was just to continue playing football that's why i went to college and then once i got done with school and i was looking to enlist um I walked into a recruiter building and they had Navy, Marines, and Army all in the same building. Went to the Navy first because I, I thought I wanted to be a SEAL. Okay. Um, I was convinced I wanted to go straight into special operations. I felt like that's where my, my physical capabilities would be best suited. And uh, I wanted to make as much of an impact as a single person could make. So I was drawn to special operations. And much like the Marines, the Navy SEALs are, are great at what, at what they do, and they're great at marketing themselves. And for most uh, civilians, when you think of kind of that elite commando, Navy SEAL tends to come to mind pretty quickly. And that was the same for me. Walk into Marine Corps office, said, I want to be a SEAL. Guy said, cool, uh, you need to enlist in the Navy, and then you could request to go to become a SEAL. They, at that point, they didn't have an option to go straight to BUDS. I said, thanks. I walked down the hall, had the same conversation with the Marine Corps recruiter who gave me basically the same answer. And then I talked to the Army guys and they had what's referred to as the 18 X-ray contract, which is a contract option to come directly into the SF pipeline um, and basically bypass the conventional Army. So I, I didn't make my decision right there. I went home, I did some research. And while it gave me the fastest option to get to soft through additional research it really was the better fit for me and i was drawn to the wide range of mission sets that sf odas are expected to do at the top of that being unconventional warfare which even just the sound of that you know sounds pretty badass but once you look into it you know it really intrigued me so that's what ultimately led me down the uh down the army route now, you went in uh, to the 18 series as a weapons sergeant, correct? Once I got through the course, yeah, I graduated. I became an 18 Bravo, which are the weapons guys. Okay. What was it about that, that that you didn't want to go engineer? You didn't want to go medical? Because a lot of guys want to go, but they want to go like medical. and the, But, you know, that's a ton of additional school, the engineers or whatever. What was it about the weapons guys? Was it just that they have interaction with almost every aspect of what you guys do? 
No, I, I wish you could say it was really that that deep of analysis. <laughs> the 18 Bravos, um, when I had started hearing about the different MOSs, you know, those were the ass kickers on the team. And the 18 Bravo course took enormous pride in being the most physically and mentally demanding of the MOS schools. And, you know, weapons and tactics is is something that I thought I could get into. You know, I grew up mostly in the city, so I didn't grow up hunting or really playing with guns. So I didn't have much of a weapons proficiency background, but I was drawn to being the guy that would orchestrate training, the guy that specialized in weapons and tactics, but really ultimately the guy that would kick ass when you needed someone to do that. Now, you you went to college, though, and you decided to finish out college, but you were an enlisted guy for a while. Why not go the officer route? I mean, in everyone I've talked to, because I was enlisted, I was a non-commissioned, uh, but if people ask me when they go to school, I tell them you should probably go that way because, you know, there's... I don't know if there's more opportunities, but it, it, you're definitely going to get more, I guess you would say, bang for your buck doing that. What was it that drew you over into the enlisted side? Yeah, so it was a couple things, man. You know, I don't come from a very robust military family background. Everything right. I learned prior to enlisting was what I could pull off of Google and you know YouTube as those platforms were getting stronger and stronger and stronger back in the early 2000s. Um, and my, my idea of the difference between offices and enlisted back then, which isn't entirely accurate, there's, there's a little bit of accuracy to it, is that the officers were the guys that told people to do stuff and the enlisted guys were the guys that actually did stuff. Right. And to a degree that, that there's, there's some accuracy there, certainly on the ODA, that, that isn't as apparent, you know, given that our team leaders, our captains, are involved in every single aspect of training we do. However, when it comes to operations, it, those guys typically aren't the first guy in the stack because they've got other things that they need to handle. Uh, so a lot of it was based on ignorance, just based what officers versus enlisted guys did. And then furthermore, the 18 x-ray contract uh, is only in, available to enlisted. So if I wanted to go officer, I would have had to go to OCS, get my commissioning, request a branch, spend some time in the conventional side, and then request to go into SF. So it wasn't as fast of a process uh, but really, I was more interested in just in being the guy that was getting his hands dirty and, and actually doing the work. Well, and, and I think that kind of ties over. You're a warrant officer now. And and from when I was in, and I, I think it's still true today, I, I think that you get the best of both worlds being a warrant officer. Those enlisted guys look at you that they can be the same as you, but you get along with the officers, too. So you get kind of the best of both worlds. Our warrants that we had in field artillery uh, kind of got along with everyone. They were, you know, they knew what was going on, but they could also blend in with the crowd. Yeah, man. I mean, we could go on for a while. I'll keep this real quick. Um, you know, th there are only two combat focused warrant offices in the army. Those are SF warrants and those are aviators. That's it. So the 180 alpha, which is what I am now, which is the MOS for SF warrant officer is, is really a unique type of warrant officer. Um, what we predominantly bring to the table is our experience, and that allows us to do essentially our primary function, which is that of an advisor, right? On a typical ODA that has a normal construct, you've got a captain who's the team leader who really is in command of the team. You've got your senior enlisted leader, which is your team sergeant, who really runs the team, right? All the boys answer to that guy. And then you got your warrant officer that kind of exists somewhere in the middle. 
right? So what I spend most of my time doing when I'm not hacking away on a computer and when I'm more importantly not training with the guys as Bravo White Rifleman or whatever they need me to do at that time is advising my team leader on up and out decision making and then advising my team sergeant or assisting him facilitating training tactics, et cetera. So I was drawn to the warrant community because particularly in SF, you need to have that institutional knowledge and that background to be able to advise leadership on what you recommend they do. But you also have to have the experience of getting your boots dirty and getting your hands dirty and having a solid feel of all of the MOSs to be able to advise on the tactical side, because every warrant officer, we're really technical experts, right? And we all are specialized with the subject matter experts in certain systems. What the 180 Alpha, the SF warrant officer, the system that we're considered experts in is the ODA. So while I came up as a Bravo, fortunately, based on the teammates I had in the past that did a phenomenal job cross-training me on all the things that they do, I wanted to be that 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 central point that was able to assist the guys with their particular function in order to keep the entire system, you know, moving forward into the future. And so uh, are you glad that you did it? I, I mean, I, I know, of course, you're probably glad, but do you think it's one of the best decisions that you've made while you've been in? I have absolutely zero regrets, man. It's certainly something I'm still learning, which is, you know, kind of the army way pretty right. much right when you figure out your job a hundred percent, that's right when you get moved to the next thing. Um, I've been in war now two years. Um, I actually just pinned CW2 yesterday. Congratulations. Uh, kind of cool. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I appreciate it, man. It's, it's an automatic thing. You really have to try to not make CW2. Yeah. But um, remember but it's cool. in you the know, army, it's a milestone. In the army, there are people that can do what you just said. You really have to try. There are people that can do it. I knew a guy that did not want to be an NCO. So every time they even talked to him about it, he would tell someone to fuck off or something so that he didn't go to the board and promote just so he could stay in E4. He didn't want to be in charge of anyone. So there are definitely people that can do that in the military. It is possible, man. Um, but yeah, I have, I have absolutely no regrets. I'm really enjoying, uh, the additional responsibility and, and pressure that, that that comes with. And it's really sad to say, and I was told this by a bunch of warrants before I ultimately submitted my packet, and they all would say the same thing in a different way, was you as a senior E7 on Friday can say something and maybe half of the audience will listen or take you seriously. You say the exact same thing on a Monday as a warrant officer and people are listening. And it's really unfortunate because you're the, you're the same guy, you have the same thoughts, you have the same intellectual capacity, but it does it does make a difference, as unfortunate as that may be. Um, so the additional responsibility that comes with being prepared, knowing what you're talking about, and then having the courage to step up and step in when you see things going sideways, uh, because if you don't do that as a warrant, you, you're essentially worthless. Well, and I'm glad you said that because later on, I want to talk to you about uh, John C. Maxwell and the five levels of leadership. And I think that you really put that into focus and in not only how you command your presence, how you command your troops, but I want to talk to that because that that's almost the exact point that you just made, that you can say something as an E7, half the people listen as a warrant, but there, there comes a time when all that shit goes out the door and 
you have to be able to lead. They have to know you know what you're doing. And, and of course, we'll get into that a little later on. I know that that's a big component of your life with those five levels of leadership. So I want to talk about your first deployment. Now, you had a pretty shitty 2012 um, in, in everything that I've watched. Now, I want to point out, if people don't know, that you were awarded three Purple Hearts. I also want you to know, I did some additional research, and of course you know who John J. Rambo is, right? You've seen all the movies. Okay? He only has four. So, <laughs> Nick, you're on a whole nother level, man. So let's talk about the first one. Okay, so we're, we're in 2012. Uh, you take shrapnel to the back in a village uh, clearing operation. Is that correct? Yeah, and this was actually my second, um, my second Afghanistan pump. Uh, was when all this craziness happened. Um, and yeah, my first, my first time being wounded in action, uh, we had only been on the ground, you know, maybe a few weeks and, you know, we knew what we were getting into before we touched foot on Afghanistan soil. We knew it was going to be highly kinetic, highly austere environment, very low signature. And it proved to be just that, you know, we got exactly what we asked for and it was, it was, it was what we wanted. Um, so we had already been in clanging and banging, you know, for a while leading up to this point. Um, so being in engagements wasn't anything new to us. You know, being hit with with some shrapnel was new to me. Uh, you know, and, I mean, you know, what's that like? And I get asked the questions. To, to be bluntly honest, it, it felt like I would got hit with someone hit me with a baseball bat, and that's what it felt like, right? Just the impact and some soreness and kind of some holy shit, what just happened to me, kind of thing. Uh, take a look at it, and yep, there's there's a pretty good sized hole, and I'm bleeding, but not a lot of pain, right? Not a lot of pain. I've stubbed my toe and, and felt more pain, and that's just you know the adrenaline's pumping, you're focused, a lot of stuff's going on. Um, so it really wasn't that big of a deal, you know. We plugged it right there, um, threw some gauze on it, wrapped it up. We finished what we needed to do, uh, got the engagement under control, and we ended up back at the house, you know, an hour or so later, and uh, you know my medic took a look at it. And he's like, listen, this is a pretty big cavity. I, I can't just sew this shut. So let's just throw you on a bird, get you to one of the higher medical facilities in Afghanistan, have them take a look. And I wanted nothing to do with that. I threw just an absolute temper tantrum, uh, like a kid in Toys R Us who couldn't get the toy he wanted. And my team sergeant came over and basically told me to shut the hell up and get on the helicopter. So, you know, obviously I did. Um, spent a week or two. Um, off-site getting treatment because the way that they treat an injury like that is they pack it with this antiseptic gauze and they do it two or three times a day to gradually let the wound heal from the inside out. Uh, otherwise, if you just try to sew it shut, there'll be this open cavity, which right. is prone to, to infection and it can get really ugly. So after like a week of this treatment, I'm going, guys, like my medic can handle this. Any one of the guys on my team can handle this. This is pretty simple. You know, can I get back to the team? And, uh, I ended up kind of going off the reservation a little bit, a story for another day, but I got myself back out there faster than anticipated. And, uh, you know, we just, we just went back to work, man. So, uh, that we're talking, uh, that's September, September, 2012. That's when that happens. So I'm figuring about the time you get back into action, probably be second week of October. Yeah. Something roundabout. Like that. Something yeah. Right. So November, 2012, you're shot in the face while rescuing your commander. Now, are you thinking at any point between these two injuries, like, 
what what am I doing? Like, do you ever think one and and we joke about it that you think what am I doing? Do you ever think am I doing something wrong? Am I not doing it right? Does it ever kind of get into your head? What what's going through your head? This is your second injury within three month time span, uh, and a very uh, worthy injury. Uh, so what is it that's going through your head during all this? The, the second injury, it, it sounds a lot worse than it was. Uh, I mean, I was very lucky, uh, around from a guy that wasn't even looking at me was literally running away on an angle, spraying and praying an AK over his shoulder, happened to just graze my cheek and it just split me open. I didn't even know that that's what it was at the time. I was maneuvering through this densely vegetated apple orchard, and I thought I had run into a branch, um, and that's what knocked me down. I didn't find out till hours later that it was actually a, from a bullet. Um, you know, in that moment, no, I wasn't thinking about myself at all. It was a highly complex ambush in a really ugly situation. A Matt B, I lead vehicle eight, a uh, 300, 400 pound IED, and just decimated it. it had six guys inside. Uh, and at that point, you know, the vehicle's on fire. I haven't checked it yet. I already found one of my buddies outside the vehicle. He, he was alive, but he's banged up. So I wasn't thinking about my own injury at all. Um, again, I didn't even realize that that's what it was. We got the situation under control. There were no casualties that day, which is amazing, uh, given how the severity of the, of the explosion with the truck. But I threw another similar temp temper tantrum when I was forced to be medevaced for that one as well. Um, I eventually got on the last bird out once QRF showed up and we were good to go and got my, you know, got to the hospital. And, you know, it's, it's funny because you walk in, I went to Bagram, you walk into the hospital at Bagram and, and uh, it, you know, Bagram's a different world compared to especially what we were doing at the time, right? We're living on the roof on the top of a mountain, 7,500 feet. There's like 20 of us total and a bunch of Afghans and we're just running combat operations all day, every day. And you go to Bagram and it's, it's like its own thing. And I had not spent any time there really other than when I would fly through there because of my injuries. Yeah. So I walk in the hospital at Bagram and I am bullshit pissed. I'm pissed at what happened to my buddies. I'm pissed that I'm even in the hospital to begin with. I'm angry. Right. And I'm, I'm not a small dude. Right? I'm 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. At the time, I'm like 265, 270. And I've been going at it hard for a couple months. And uh, the staff there, <laughs> they're trying to get me to essentially de-arm myself, right? I got my rifle, I got my sidearm, I got grenades. And they're trying to maintain this protective bubble that they have within the hospital. So they're trying to get me to clear my weapon and, and get rid of all this stuff that goes boom. And, uh, and I'm really not having any of it. And I, I, I'm very uncooperative. And uh, the the sort of commando was there. And he walked over. Awesome, dude. And he was eventually the one that calmed me down. And um, he's like, yeah, you know, let's just get this taken care of. I said, cool. Go see the doc. <clears throat> and he wants to put me under anesthesia to put my face back together. First, I stop him. I said, hey, let me I got to go take a piss. And this is a funny story because I walk in the bathroom. I take a piss. And this was the first time I looked at myself in the mirror. And it looked like a zombie had taken a bite out of the side of my face. I mean, it was pretty substantial. Yeah. And it had clipped an artery, so I'm still bleeding. And it was at that point that I felt pretty bad about giving my medic such a hard time about wanting me to be medevaced. I said, oh, yeah, this is probably a good call. I, I do kind of look like shit. So I go out, and now I'm calm. Okay, cool. Doc, do what you got to do. 
He's like, we're going to give you some anesthesia or put this back together. And I'm like, no, no anesthesia. And I don't mean to sound like a tough guy because the reality is six of my buddies were there and they were severely injured. And I didn't know if, if some of them were going to survive. My team leader was one of them. And he was the guy that I pulled out of the truck and he was in real bad shape. My entire focus was on them. And I wanted to be bedside immediately. So no anesthesia. You're not knocking me out. Give me some local and, and do whatever you got to do. He looks over at the sort of commander and says, you know, hey, sir, is this okay with you? And he's like, yeah, just go ahead and do it. So he gives me a little lidocaine, and they had to cauterize the wound. So they take this little mini welder, and they kind of just stick it in your face, and they basically singe everything back together. And I'm laying there, and, uh, you know, my, it's it's kind of a weird sensation when you can smell your your, your face on fire. It's essentially what was happening. Um, I just bear down and, and, and just get through it. It really wasn't that bad. Uh, again, I was just full of rage and hate and anger and love for, for my teammates. Um, you know, I was there maybe a week or so, two weeks maybe. They really didn't try to keep me any longer than they needed to based on the experience the first time I was medevaced. But a long-winded way to answer your question, DJ, is, is we had been through a lot at that point, and a lot of guys have been banged up. And it just kind of became status quo for us on that mission. And it was not just our team, but the other teams around the Valley that we were, we were working out of, everyone was feeling the heat. You know, we were in Wardak province, which back then up through today is arguably the hottest zone, you know, in Afghanistan. So they are, they know what they're doing. They know how to fight. And, you know, we, we were taking it to them every day and guys were getting banged up. Guys were going down. Guys were paying the ultimate sacrifice. So, these little flesh wounds that I was dealing with, man, it really wasn't something that was on the forefront of my mind. I was just, I was just aching to get back to the guys. So when you say, <clears throat> before we get into the third injury, when you talk about this and you say you're more concerned with kind of the hate and rage that's going on, the love for your teammates, very visceral emotions that you're showing. Are, are you running on this 24 hours a day over there, this hate and rage and and it's keeping you in this fight and you're you're seeing everything just kind of go around you just go to the wayside is it building was it there how are you dealing with all of this stuff while you're there focusing on the mission yeah not not really i mean in those moments of, of extreme high stress you know injuries guys around you going down yeah those emotions will flare up but right day to day you know conducting operations it's just it's just business as usual and it's kind of remarkable what the human mind and body can become conditioned to um even even things like jumping out of planes right it's something that we do now i've been doing it 14 12 however many years since i've been to airborne school you talk to the average person it's like yeah, like they can't imagine like how do you do that that's insane to me well when you do it 150 times it it, it kind of takes the edge off a little bit right you know being in combat is, is very similar where for most people you can't possibly imagine how how do you do that again and again and again well one it's your job right it's the profession that we decided we wanted to go into we worked really hard to get there and that's exactly the kind of fight that we all wanted um but it's not a day-to-day -day, you know anger hate rage running around afghanistan out of my mind just looking this bloodthirsty right. nut job right. that, that that's not the case right we're, we're professionals so this is what we do for living and everything's very methodical and we train a certain way. So, but yeah, in those moments of extreme stress, 
Sure. I mean, the the anger can come out, the hate can come out, the love can come out. And you can you can go on that roller coaster of emotions very easily. And the reason I bring that up is because we're going to get ready to get into the third injury and really kind of the thing that set the tone for your career, you as a soldier. I think that it it has shown not only who you are, but your resiliency and all those things. And the reason I asked that was we've talked about this already. You're a big guy, six, five, six, six, a big dude. You've, you've always been strong. You've always done well at sports. Your third injury happens in March of 2013. Uh, you're shot five times, four in the right leg, once in the left. Now I want to set up the story and I want you to tell it because uh, I want everyone to understand exactly what happened uh, ultimately though, at the end of this story, you end up losing your leg. Uh, and so when we talk about that, I want you to set up the story, but then I want to talk to you about what I just talked about, the hate and anger and what kind of happens after this kind of injury takes place. So if you would please set up the story, cause it's, it's a it's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard of how it happened. Uh, most people would think, you know, this is going to be uh, in the middle of, of a battle and all that kind of stuff. But this one happened in one of the craziest ways I've ever heard. Yeah, so this is towards the tail end of our rotation. I, I want to say we only had a few weeks left before the, the team coming in behind us would, would be ready to come in. But we're still going heavy. We're still going hot in the paint and getting ready to go on a mission. And we had we had been living with an ANA SF team, so Afghan National Army Special Forces team. They were embedded with us. They lived with us. We did everything with us. We had those guys. We also were doing routine missions with the regular Afghan National Army, and we were doing missions with the Afghan National Police, and we were doing missions with the Afghan local police. Not only missions, but we were training these guys. So when we weren't on operations, we're training which is what we do. So this particular day, it was, a, it was a massive joint ops. We had guys from all these different entities that were there. And when we first got there, we didn't have much of a compound, right? It was, I don't think there was a U.S. presence that had been in that location at any point for years and years and years. So there was, wasn't much. We basically built it ourselves. And prior to us having any kind of established perimeters or security, we would just do these, our partners would just come and go. And it was kind of crazy. As a Bravo, one of the main things that we do is, is camp security. So myself and the rest of the Bravo section, that was kind of our focus when we weren't conducting operations was to build some kind of a perimeter and security SOPs, which we did. Our SOP ended up being that prior to a mission, the leadership from each of these sections would come in to our motor pool area where the trucks are parked, fuel storage, some other stuff. Leadership would come in. We would brief them on the operation. The entire rest of the element would wait outside the compound. And then their leadership would go brief them on what we were doing, scheme of maneuver, et cetera. And then we would roll. On this particular day, we get ready to do our pre-mission brief. Leadership is there. And a Ford Ranger pickup truck, Afghan local police, drives into the motor pool and I see it right away. And I am faced with the decision that most SF guys are faced with many, many, many times. When you see something that you know isn't quite right, it goes against an SOP and you have to decide what you want to do. Common sense would say, 
fix the problem right now, which is not the wrong answer and something I certainly think about to this day. You also have to keep in mind that the relationship that we maintain with our partners is critical. And the establishment and maintenance of that rapport is what allows us to do our job. So that's a balance and it's really tough to decide which way do you go? Do you maintain the relationship or do you say, nah, the hell with that, I'm addressing this problem right now. I faced that crossroads in that moment and I decided to wait. And I decided that at the end of this operation, I'll bring this up with my detachment leadership. They'll address it with the um, Afghan national police leadership. And that's how we'll solve this problem. Go through the mission brief. We do our final comms checks, PCCs, PCIs. I'm standing next to our detachment commander and I turn and I start walking towards my truck. And as I'm walking away, I hear gunfire from behind me. And my initial thought was one of our partners had negligently discharged their weapon, which wouldn't be unheard of in a place like Afghanistan. Um, after you know the third, fourth, fifth consecutive round, not only did I realize that someone was intentionally shooting, but it was coming from belt-fed machine gun. And it's crazy, even in that moment, but certainly looking back in retrospect, how slow time moves and how every second kind of feels like almost like an hour. And I can remember glancing back and I see a guy had jumped up on the back of that Ford Ranger pickup truck and was firing a truck mounted PKM machine gun into the crowd. I had a vehicle, an armored vehicle right next to me, and I could have moved to cover and then looked to eliminate the threat, which is what we are trained to do. That is what I should have done, 100%. This vignette, when I tell this story, which is used now in training throughout SOF and otherwise, I use this as an example of what not to do. What I did is what not to do. We train a certain way. We train to react to ID, react to near ambush, react to fire ambush. It's based on analysis that's been gathered over years uh, to give us a direction to go in in that moment. So you become responsive. doesn't require a whole lot of analytical thinking in that time because you've done it so many times. So I have an option to move the cover. I also then see one of our infantry uplift soldiers who was set to be a driver for us on that operation maybe 15 feet in front of this gunner and he's frozen and he's not moving young kid first deployment and my protective instincts for him my love for him superseded my training which is not something that i'm proud about so i decided to move to him and when i say decide that's almost a strong word because this is all happening you know very fast i moved to him and I get in between the gunner and the soldier. And that was when I felt the first round hit me. And I end up on top of this kid, whether it was because I got hit or because I was just moving so fast, uh, I couldn't tell you. I end up on top of him, and then I feel another two, three impacts to my legs. So I know I've been shot. At this point, I've been shot a couple times. I'm like, okay, yep, you've been hit. You will deal with that in a second. So I drag myself and this kid behind a second vehicle get some cover, pick up a rifle that was laying on the ground behind me, um, start to think about engaging the enemy. Um, I don't recall if I cracked off a couple rounds or not. I don't think I did. Um, I do remember 
losing peripheral vision, even that fast. My body was kind of already going into a state of shock. So one of my teammates eliminated that threat thoroughly. That was the initiation to a complex ambush. So we started taking machine gun rounds, RPGs, et cetera, from outside of our compound. So I realized that my work with a weapon is done. And I go, I check this soldier that I'm still laying on top of, and he is fine for all intents and purposes. He's in shock, but he doesn't have any holes in him, which is good. So then I go to check on myself, and I expose my right leg, rip the pants open, and my leg just looks like hammered, ground-up meat, just bone and tissue. Um, Again, not in a lot of pain, right? Not in a lot of pain. Even when I saw it, I'm really not in a lot of pain. Adrenaline is just out of control. And here's where training actually kicks in. Here's where I do what I'm supposed to do, what I've been trained to do, and that go into uh, medical treatment of myself. So I grab a tourniquet. I slap that thing on as tight, as tight as I can. I wrench it down, lock it in. We experienced that day uh, 11 U.S. casualties, uh, including three that were killed. I often miss, misspeak and say two, but it was actually three because we did lose our, uh, um, our military working dog as well. Uh, our, our team leader was killed, who was the guy I was standing right next to before I broke off. And our infantry squad uplift uh, squad leader was also killed. And then there's another nine guys, U.S., on the ground wounded, and another 10 or so Afghans that are wounded or killed. So it's a catastrophic mass cal event. Our senior medic was one of the guys that was wounded. He was actually laying right next to me. So we have our junior medic, who was actually a National Guardsman, who was attached to our team for that deployment, is running the show. This is his first deployment, straight out of the course, and he's not even an organic asset to our team, although he very much was, and to this day will always be part of our team. He's running the show. So I know we're dealing with a mass casualty situation. I also realized in that moment, as I look down, I see the river of blood flowing from me to where I had initially been hit, I know my femoral artery has been cut. Because of that, I also know I have anywhere from, you know, eight to 12 minutes uh, to live without some kind of significant intervention before I'm, I no longer have any blood left in my body. I said, okay, this is, this is the situation. Got it. I slap on a second tourniquet because I'm still bleeding. Get that on, wrench it down. When I lock that one in, is right around the time I think I passed out for the first time, not for very long. And I come to, and a couple of the guys are, are on me and they're, they're assessing me and they start working on me. And uh, I know with my whole heart that I am dying. I am convinced of it with absolute certainty. So I didn't want my teammates to be wasting precious time working on me. And I was trying to get him away. I'm like, go work on someone else. And they, of course, ignored me. And they did what they were trained to do. Um, but I knew I was dying. And I was like, hey, I don't know the severity of the other injuries, but I know I am someone that can't be saved. Go work on someone that you can save. You know, proper triage. They slapped on another tourniquet on top of me. I ended up with three of them on me. And uh, they put me on some fluids, or at least they got IV access. And at that point, the work was kind of done for them. I felt like I was still bleeding out. Um, it's it's tough to say in retrospect because my my scrotum was actually also lacerated, which there's a lot of blood flow to that region. So, but I could tell I was still bleeding. So 
in a last kind of ditch effort of desperation, I grabbed some gauze out of my out of my med kit and I balled it up into what we call a power ball. I loosened up the the top tourniquet and I basically just rammed my hand into my thigh, kind of up towards my hip. And I'm trying to feel around for the femoral lottery. And you know, at this point, several minutes has gone by. All the blood in my body is shunting inward to protect my organs. So I really can't feel anything. I have no like dexterity. I'm dealing with these meat mittens. But I think I feel something. Here's where the pain kicks in because I'm I'm rubbing by you know broken bone. My femur was shattered. So I'm dealing with some pretty intense pain. And I feel something that feels kind of like a pulse. You know, I kind of just go with it. I ram down as hot as I can. I re uh, tighten the tourniquet on top of it, lock it in. And that was it. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I do what I can do. Now it's time to stay in the fight, stay busy. How can I best use the precious time I have left on this earth? I just drug myself over to some of my teammates and I just, you know, spent some time talking to them, trying to comfort them. I do recall eventually getting, getting medevaced out. It took the medevac bird you know, around 90 minutes to be able to land uh, because it was a complex ambush that was ongoing. It was overhead within a couple minutes, but it couldn't land for quite some time. I do remember uh, being loaded on the bird and, you know, one of my teammates kind of reaching in and, uh, you know, grabbed me and, and like, and kissed me on the forehead. And that was kind of his goodbye. And I don't, I don't think anyone thought I was going to, going to survive that. Um, but hey, obviously I'm, I'm here, I'm here to tell the story, man. So in saying all that, let's go back real quick to what I talked about first. Uh, when we talked about that hate and anger. Now, of course, not right now. You're focusing on just staying alive. As you go to the hospital, at first they were going to remove you at the hip, correct? They were going to remove your leg at the hip. And then they decided against it. The doctor decided against it. So that was when I eventually got to Walter Reed. Yeah, okay. I ended up spending, once I got to Bagram, I was there about five or six days till I was stable enough to survive a flight to Germany. Was in Germany one night. Um, at that point, they had already started amputating my leg. They took my, basically my foot off in Afghanistan. They took me up to the knee in Germany. And then I was to Walter Reed the very next day. And yeah, I was in the ICU and the chief of orth, uh, orthopedics, um, orthotics came in. Um, chief of ortho, excuse me, he came in and I'll never forget, granted, I'm whacked out of my mind on ketamine and Dilaudid, but I'll never forget this conversation. He's still a really good friend of mine. And he looked at me and said, Hey man, your leg is loaded with bacteria and mold and moss and every fungus you can think of. And you have 10 different infections going on. My staff wants to take your leg off at the hip right now and just get rid of this problem and get you moving on with life. But I think I could save more of your leg, but it's going to be a street fight. And, you know, I need you in that fight with me. And I can just remember looking up to him and saying, yeah, doc, look, you know, let's do it. So he went, you know, obviously went that route, leaving me with what I have today. But initially, once I did get to Bethesda, Walter Reed, they wanted to just go hip, call it a day and let's move on. And so, of course, you're whacked out of your mind, like you said, on drugs and everything. Or have you started thinking about that day yet as you're moving through this process of Bagram, then to Germany, then to Walter Reed, uh, then to Bethesda? 
have you thought about that day yet? Or are you still kind of in shock? Are you still kind of thinking about just staying alive? Have you gone back to that yet? I can remember even when I was at, at Bagram and I'm on, uh, I'm in the ICU and I'm real touch and go thinking I would be back with the boys in like a week or two. And obviously I didn't process how severe the injury was, but I had been banged up twice before. It was a, you know, week, week and a half, two week turnaround. And I was back with the guys in my mind. I would be back with the guys really, really fast. It really didn't set in how severe it was until I, uh, yeah, until I got to Walter Reed and I started going through three, four surgeries a week when they were just incrementally amputating my leg higher and higher and higher, you know, millimeter at a time, inch at a time. That was when it really first set in that, I mean, you're, you're like legitimately hurt. This is gonna, this isn't going to be like the other two times. Okay. So this sets up kind of the next set of questions for you. We've talked about it once before. Uh, you're a big guy. You're strong. You've always been capable. You you live through and continue to, to kick doors after two injuries. We're on to this one. First off, in your mind, you see that your leg is going away. That has to do something to your ego. You've always been in everything I've read to you, and, and in no way do I mean this by saying that you think this, but always been kind of a Superman, always been strong, always been able to do it, but you see your body going away in pieces. I mean, that, that's how you have to look at it, in different surgeries in pieces. It's got to do something to your brain, and and this sets us up for what happens after all this. But what is going through your brain right now? Like, how are you dealing with this emotionally, knowing that this is never going to change? There's no just going back to the fight, getting it sewed up, getting it packed with gauze and going back to the fight. You know, this is life changing. So how's it going into your in your mind? How are you dealing with this situation? Yeah. I knew, you know, again, eventually I was in an entirely different kind of fight and it wouldn't nearly be as fast of a turnaround. I was also convinced, even in the very early stages, surgeries three, four times a week, that I was going back. That was where my mind went immediately. And I actually had greater frustration with what was going on with my left leg, which is my sound leg, than I did with what they were doing to my right leg, which is the one that they continuously amputating. I, because I took a round to my lower left leg, I ended up with compartment syndrome, which inflates the blood in between the fascia and the muscle. They had to do a double fasciotomy. They just slice you open on both sides, let it all drain. But they almost had to take my left leg as well, below the knee, because it was so bad. Because of the nerve damage that was caused, I had what's called drop foot, where it's just your foot is just like a dead stick. You can't dorsiflex your foot up towards your face. And that drove me crazy. Because I knew I needed this leg. This was going to be my engine. This was going to be my motor. You guys will get, I already know I'm going to get a new robotic something or other that's going to be strapped on that I'm going to run around and do stuff with. But I need this other one. And the docs were like, listen, man, nerves, they regenerate at something like a millimeter a day. There's nothing we can do to speed it up. You know, we don't know, but we're pretty sure you're going to get movement back in your foot. 
and that took some time. I had, I had one, even once I was upright, I had to have a brace to, you know, lock my foot upright so I could stop moving. But I'll never forget the day in the hospital where I'm trying the whole time I'm trying to move my foot, trying to move my foot, trying to move my foot. I can't. It's just dead. And one day my big toe just wiggles a little bit. And you would have thought I just won the Super Bowl. I could I called my father in the room I'm like, Dad, check this out. And my big toes just wiggling a little bit. And that was in a whole nother level of you know motivation. Like, no, 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 this is gonna come back. I just need these guys to finish cutting off my right leg. Leave me with whatever you have, but I think I can do this. And my mind was fixated from that point on not just getting back to my profession, but actually getting back to the job of a guy on a team. And I kind of went down the uh, the crazy road pretty early. And I'm in between surgeries. I've got the staff bringing me in these little elastic bands and two-pound dumbbells. And I'm doing what I can to start building my body back up, even while they're continuously hacking another part of it off. And the Sykes, it's part of the Walter Reed whole of approach treatment. And they come in regularly and they check on you. How you doing? What's going on? And I'm giving them my honest to God truth. Doc, I'm good. You know, I'm going to get past this. I'm going to get back to doing what I do. He had a conversation with my father who tells the story much better than I do without me there and said, hey, dad, check it out. Nick doesn't quite realize where he is. He doesn't quite realize the severity of his situation. Every time I talk to him, he's talking about going back to an ODA and going back to his boys and doing this stuff in Afghanistan and running around crazy. Um, there is going to come a time when the light bulb turns on. And I just want you as his father and his primary assistant aid giver to be prepared for that. He may go down this really dark road, uh, which can get ugly. So just be prepared for it. And which is a genuine and understandable recommendation and advice to give somebody like my father in that situation. My father looks at him and says, doc, I appreciate what you're saying. I'll keep an eye on him, you know, but I think he gets it. I think he does know where he is. I think he does know that he's lost his leg. Um, this is just kind of who he is. And, uh, I think he's going to be okay. And, you know, the journey, it's a roller coaster ride and there's, there's highs and there's lows and it can get, it can get pretty ugly at times, but I was so obsessed with getting back to doing what I love to do and what I felt my purpose in life was to do that it allowed me to get out of those, those divots and those ruts relatively quickly and, and just, you know, keep pressing on. But you have to, you, you have to see where that line of questioning is coming from. That's not a normal response by any means. That's not a normal response by a person that knows they've lost their leg that knows I, I get it to go back, but there wasn't ever at, at any point, a, a, a dark point, uh, uh, that that hate and anger that anything or was it always because that's that's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard if if it's always been that where it's just positive 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 you're a different kind of human being I, I, you yeah, have to know that I don't, right no I do man and uh I, I want to be clear when I when I set my mind on that course of action and I set my mind on that mission getting getting back to the team, I was initially fueled by competitiveness, stubbornness, anger, rage, um, and partial ego, 
right? It was, it was about me getting back to doing what I wanted to do. It was about proving all the people that are around me that said it was impossible wrong. It was about proving myself right. It was about me and I was pissed off and I was going to come back there and I was going to make you regret putting me in this bed, right? So there was a lot of, you know, negative emotional thoughts that were fueling what I was doing and my need and my obsession to get back. What's interesting to fast forward a little bit is once I started making substantial progress, you know, fast forward a year and I'm back at my unit and I'm going through more advanced recovery. It dawned on me one, one morning, 3 a.m., cold sweat, wake up. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm making progress, but I'm trying to go back to a team, a team with 10 or 11 other guys that have families and on an ODA, you you need to be able to put your life in someone else's hands and vice versa. And I thought, man, <clears throat> although this is what I want more than anything, is this in the best interest of the team? And I had some really candid conversations with my teammates and some leadership. And they were all about me continuing to pursue getting back. Um, but once I started looking at them instead of myself, as motivation and as the passion behind what I was trying to do, it just escalated my output and my productivity just to a whole nother level um, because it wasn't about me anymore. You know, it was about them. And that's a very powerful tool and motivator you know, to, to be able to use. On the opposite side of that, was there ever any, was there ever any kickback from anyone? Did you ever see, where people maybe didn't trust the situation or maybe they didn't trust uh, your judgment to come back, anything like that. Because uh, you and I had talked um, about another guy that kind of went through the same thing, not necessarily the exact same thing, but he says that there were people that told him like, what are you doing? You, what are you coming back here for? You, you can't do this. And, and he saw it a couple times. Did you ever see that? Or was it constant just support behind you? There were certainly uh, people around me at that time that that were opposed to it, um, family, friends, some colleagues. Um, and in the short term, I made some difficult decisions to basically remove them from my life, uh, some of which have come back since. But anybody that wasn't um, supportive, really anybody that wasn't providing me with something to assist me in what I was doing, um, was removed from the equation because I was obsessed with what I was doing and nothing was going to get in the way. Any obstacle, individual or otherwise, that wasn't in, in, in line with what I was trying to do was removed, you know, period. My chain of command, um, I laugh about it because I've had conversations with these guys, you know, years later. And when I first got back to third group, which is what the unit I was in at the time, they asked me what my goals were. And I told them I was going back to the team on day one. And they said, okay. Um, is that something you're ready to do now? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I mean, I was still walking with a cane. I was a mess, but that's where I'm going. And they said, okay. And they were, they were supportive of that. And, you know, eventually I, I took the job as an instructor. I did that for about eight months teaching combatives and CQB. And then I started this three month or so process of different assessments and tests to, to earn my way back onto the team. Having conversations with my leadership years later, 
they have told me that, and you know, they weren't alone on this. We were supportive of you because we felt you had earned the right to try to get back. But none of us really thought that we would have to make that decision. And none of us thought we would actually get to the point where, wow, like we've put this guy through everything. He's done it all. Like we have to decide yes or no. They assumed that at some point along the way, because they threw the kitchen sink at me, I would realize that this wasn't what was best for me uh, or I just was unable to do something that they considered a requirement. And that would be that. It turned out that that wasn't the case. I just, you know, continue to knock out all these assessments. Um, to answer your question even more specifically, yes. Some people thought I was out of my mind. I mean, part of my reassessment process was a psych screening. And I'm pretty sure that's because some of the guys around me, leadership and otherwise, may have thought I was actually out of my mind, like legitimately clinically crazy. Um, and the psych came back and said, yeah, he's, he's no crazier than he was before. You know, he's fine. Um, so most of the, most of the people I had in my community, just to begin with, were supportive. My family obviously had some severe reservations. I had put them through the absolute ringer, um, where they thought I was dead or dying. So that was really tough. They, they know me well enough to, to know that once I kind of set my mind on something, it's really tough to get me to, to detract from that. And, um, and that goes the same for my teammates and my chain of command, you know, supportive, and if they weren't, then they weren't really involved anyway. Um, but most thought that I wouldn't actually be able to do it, um, whether it was physically or administratively. And, you know, quickly, man, there are some trailblazers that came before me um, that really pushed hard and really had a shot of doing what I ultimately ended up doing. I'm talking about above the knee amputee guys, that that amazing individuals that I stay in touch with today that pursued that same route and um you know for one reason or the other they, they didn't quite make it but the guys that came before me really softened up the trail for me to follow um so that when my time came to make that run they had seen other guys attempt this before and i was just able to you know through work discipline sacrifice and then a little bit of luck with the guys that were in charge at that time able to kind of get it across the goal line. Let's talk about your rehabilitation. We've already talked with you kind of going back to the teams, but there's an important aspect of it. Of course, you and I talked, it's changed names, but you went through the Thor program. And uh, I don't think I've heard anyone more than you speak higher about this organization and, and what it does to bring it back. So it stands for a tactical human optimization, rapid rehabilitation and reconditioning. Um, and these guys before your teams and stuff kind of put you through the ringer to bring you back online. Now I've seen a video of you do a 42 inch box jump on one leg and I watched you whip a guy's ass, uh, in the Naganogi, uh, intermediate division with one leg. Once again, you got to understand this is not normal. This is not normal behavior. Uh, and I, I just got to understand. I mean, it's such a encouragement to people that see you do this. And I'm not just talking about soldiers and stuff. I'm talking about people that have disabilities were maybe born without that. And they see, I, I, I saw even in the comments, this one guy had a kid that was an above the knee amputee. He followed you just to show his son what he could do later on in life. His son was still a kid. That's gotta be a massive one. That's gotta be a massive responsibility on your shoulders. 
Um, but let's talk about the Thor program, how they kind of worked you through this and uh, what it means for you in the future, even past military service with what you still have to give to that community. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I'm just blessed to be where I am now um, since the implementation of the Thor program and, and soft recognizing the value in funding and supporting coaches and other personnel and the equipment of that caliber, you know, for us, it hasn't always been that case. Going through recovery at Walter Reed, even though my therapists and my coaches and the docs I was working with there, they knew my goal, you know, their primary function is to get you upright and get you to be able to live a normal life um, as best as they can as an amputee or whatever your, you know, your injury is. And I was taking it to the max and doing what I needed to do. Once I got back to third group, started working as an instructor and started working with the Thor guys, I walk in the training facility and I'm another, I'm another SF guy, right? It's not, here comes this, you know, wounded guy that, no, like it's another team dude that's here to go to work. And I just think that that mindset in that particular community alone sets them apart from most places. They have amazing pedigrees. In order to be a strength conditioning coach for us, you have to come from either the Olympic Committee, uh, NCAA Division One, or professional athletics. So these guys are world-class strength and conditioning coaches. Um, all of them take a substantial, in some cases, pay cut to come work for the United States government because they do it out of the passion and the need to contribute and give back. And that just says a lot about these individuals. So you know the guy you're working with genuinely wants to be there because he or she has a lot of other more lucrative options out there. You walk in there and it's time to go to work. And, yeah, we spent a lot of time – adapting different movements. Um, how do we modify this? You know, this is how you normally would do a deadlift or a squat or a jump or whatever it is. And then it's just, you get in the laboratory and you just spend hours after hour after hour, just, you know, trial and error. And these guys were willing to do it with me. And um, just a huge pot of not just my recovery, but really the training prior to being wounded, right? My surgeons were the first to tell me, Dude, if you were not as big and strong as you were when you got injured, you would be dead. Flat out, you would be dead, right? The expression, strong people are harder to kill, is 100% accurate. And I give a lot of that credit to my coaches that I worked with prior to deployment, you know, that helped, that that built my body up the way it was. They built my body, my mind, and my longevity. Um, so I give, I, I give them credit prior to being wounded just as much as i do to what they did for me after i was wounded and you know and getting me back it's just a phenomenal concept and organization and these guys are world class and i've been using them ever since i got into sf and they became a thing i still use them you know to this day man it it's an amazing thing what they did so back to the question that i asked you when i when i saw this guy that that tells his son about you shows the videos that you have on your YouTube channel on your website uh, and shows him this is what you can do one that that has to be a huge um, comfort to you that you've done the right thing but number two the responsibility to keep living that life to keep pushing does it ever does it ever weigh on you 
it can get pretty heavy, man. And I'll tell you, as I've as I've moved farther and farther into the public venue, which is what I'm you know I'm doing here with you, it's been a difficult transition, and it's still to this day is a challenge because I, I don't enjoy the sound of my voice, and I grew up as a quiet professional. Right? That's what was ingrained in me as a kid. You know, don't talk about it, be about it. You know, let your actions speak for you. You move into SF and quiet professionals, quite literally, is kind of one of our synonyms. Um, it wasn't until I was, it was after my first deployment back from Afghanistan as an amputee and the USASOC commander at the time was hosting some people from the Beltway, uh, something to do with the gym and the Thor program. And he asked me to come represent the program and be kind of a face to these people to show them what they can do. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I told my company commander that I, I would, I was going to decline. And he's like, listen, uh, when a general asks you to come do something, he's not really asking you. So you're going to be there and you're going to do well. And I said, okay, Roger that. So I show up and, you know, I talk about the program. I talk about what happened to me, recovery, et cetera. And I, you know, after the fact, I said, Hey, sir, we we're just kind of talking off the side. I said, Hey, sir, I really, I'm really not comfortable with this. Like I am a, a soldier. I am a team guy. My job is to train and go do what you need me to go do wherever you need me to go do it. And like, this isn't what I do. And he said, listen, dude, I, I get it. You know, I got it. You know, this isn't your thing, but here's the deal. Your experiences and your lessons learned and what you've been through, it's not about you. It's about, it's about the next guy or the next gal that's going through something, whether it's a loss of a limb or whatever it is, uh, you have an obligation and a responsibility to share that. Um, for them. And in that moment, it's, you know, my entire perspective kind of switched. So I've slowly and gradually gotten more comfortable with talking publicly, social media, etc. Um, and it's great because again, I don't enjoy the spotlight, but what I'm becoming more and more obsessed with is the impact that it can create and being able to reach out and touch somebody when they reach out to you and you give them a little piece of advice. And they respond to you a month later and said, hey, man, my whole world has changed, right? I, I, I feel good. And some of it can get pretty dark, right? I've had messages or emails that, hey, I am about to suck start a shotgun and I, I don't want to be here anymore. That's some pretty heavy shit, you know, when you know, I'm, I'm working, I got my family and then, I, you know, I do my best and my damnedest and I stay very up on it to respond to these people that reach out. Um. So yeah, man, it can get it can get heavy, but you know what? Just like Yusufak Commander said back then, you know, it's an obligation that I have undertaken on myself. And uh, if I can't help the next guy, if if what you're doing isn't supporting someone else, then you know what's what's the point? So um, I'm glad to do it. Uh, I'm honored to do it. Anytime someone reaches out, whether it's for them or a family member. And I've had the opportunity to help mentor some other SF guys, soft guys, military guys that have lost a limb and they're trying to work their way back uh, because I didn't have much of a much of a guide, you know, to follow. So it's an honor to be able to to try to streamline that for whoever I can help. In speaking, I'm glad you said to give people some advice or in things that you're saying to people. Let's go over a couple different of the topics that you teach about failure. Now, what you say is failure short-term, defeat is long-term. So 
I want to get your thoughts because that's an interesting perspective to put on it. Once again, not one that the normal person would look at. They see failure and defeat as the same thing. Uh, and you say that practice is intentional and controlled failure uh, by never pushing yourself. So let's talk about failure and how you look at it and what you say to people that take failure and defeat as the same thing. Yeah, and you know, those people are probably right. I bet the thesaurus would probably agree with them. Um, <laughs> my relationship with failure is one that has come over time. And growing up hyper-competitive in athletics, you know, I, I had this, I don't, I don't fail at anything. I always win, and I will just keep going until I win. And to a degree, that's accurate, but I've grown to just realize and accept that it's through failing that is where we grow and that's how we learn. And it's within the failures that the wisdom is located. And by going through that, be willing to extend to the point where you will fail allows you to extract that knowledge and wisdom and then ram it back into whatever system it is you're using and modify that to be able to work smart you know, we we need to be working hard. But we want to be working smarter, and we learn the lessons when we fall on our ass or fall on our face, which I've done quite, you know, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And, you know, I'm big into martial arts and I've been doing jujitsu for a really long time now, and it's like the greatest analogy because if I walk into the fight house two, three days a week, and I seek out, you know, white belts, guys that just came into the gym, and that, those are who I train against, and those are who I spar against. If I go to a competition and I put myself in a novice bracket and I just clean house, go straight through, I'm really not learning anything, right? It's it's almost guaranteed that I'm going to win. What good does that really do me? Not much. It's when I overextend myself and I train and compete against people better than me and I get my ass handed to me and I look back and go, yeah, okay, when I moved there, that didn't work. I, I moved that way. I tried that transition and he submitted me. Yeah, it's a shock to the ego and our pride can get in our way, which really is what this comes down to. But once you can get past that and recognize that that's where the wisdom is located, it becomes an essential aspect of training. You know, when you walk into a weight room, for another example, the idea is to push and push and push until you reach failure. Like that's what triggers the muscle to grow bigger and stronger. Um, so that relationship for me took some time. It's one that I, I tend to talk about quite frequently because pride for a lot of us, especially you know, the hyper type A personality type people running around can be really tough to get beyond that. But once you can accept it and look at it as an opportunity to grow as opposed to a shot to your pride, I think that begins to unlock access to a higher degree of, of productivity. And the next one is the power of language. Now, the reason I bring up the power of language next is because with failure and defeat, a lot of people think of it as a synonym. You think of it as a different way. But when you talk about the power of language, you use words like always, never, everybody, nobody. Um, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about inaccurate excuses. So if you could... The power of language, because when I first saw you talk about this, I thought it was going to be something completely different than what it was. But it's more of a mind state 
of how you have to train your body and your mind to work. Would that be a correct fitting for how you think of it? I think so, man, because I think at the end of the day, the language we use, whether it's spoken internally to ourselves or outwardly spoken, can set conditions and ceilings for ourselves. You're really establishing almost a contract with yourself through the verbiage that you use. And there's certainly, you know, common everyday expressions that get thrown around a lot. And we use a lot of these types of language and it's not meant to be taken literally. But the problem is, is when you, when you use these phrases over time, it can become literal in your mind, right? Like I don't have enough time, right? Okay. What are you really saying when you don't have, when you say you don't have enough time, because everyone has the same amount of time in every single day. What you're really saying is I'm not prioritizing this task or this thing. It's not, it's not important enough for me to do it. You have the time. You're just choosing to spend it doing something else. So by just reframing the verbiage within that expression takes ownership for one of what it is we're doing or not doing, right? You are given the same 24 that I'm given, that anyone's given, you are deciding not to do X, Y, and Z. Now, obligations, I need to work, I need to feed my infant, I got it. But these are priorities. You can rack and stack every single thing you do throughout any given day on a list, right? And it's up to you on what that list looks like, but they are choices, right? Um, you know, it is what it is. It's an expression that people throw on constantly and I get it and it just drives me nuts. Like what you're saying is, this is the way it is and there's nothing I can do about it. Is that really the case, right? There are a few things in life where that truly is the only option, right? The sun rises in the east, that is what it is. Okay, that would be accurate because there's really nothing I can pragmatically do to change that. But I hate my job, it is what it is. No, 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 like stop, 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 stop. Maybe you didn't mean that expression literally, but by saying that either to yourself or outward, all the time just sets this condition of how you can live your life with a certain ceiling on it. And it's not real. You're creating your own barrier that doesn't exist. I recognize that we aren't going to walk around like contracts, right? Like legal contracts that are very particular with verbiage. That's why you hire people to write them for you because we can barely understand them like the average person. I don't expect people to walk around talking like that. Um, but I do think we can clean it up a little bit and just be aware of it. One, take that ownership for whatever decision was made and the results of such and use that power of language to leave options open and not limit ourselves to a certain level of, of production. Let's talk about for the final thing. Let's talk about leadership. Uh, I think this is important to you. I think it's not only important for what you do in the teams, but I think it's important for everything that we've talked about tonight where people come to you for advice, people look up to you. Leadership starts and ends with you. I think that's kind of your mindset. Now, a thing that you say about leadership is it's not born. It's a skill and it takes practice and deliberate training, which to me kind of goes back to that failure thing. You're going to fail as a leader. You're also going to grow as a leader by failing as a leader. So 
You talk about John C. Maxwell a lot uh, and his five levels of leadership. So if you could, I want to talk about that and I want to talk about your leadership, where that style came from and how you expect to put it into the people that you're leading to turn them in, into leaders that you would follow. Yeah, so I got turned on to John when I was in Lebanon. And I was going through my board process to go to the warrant officer course. And ultimately, it's up to the group commander. So you do a board with him and the CSM and chief warrant officer and some other people. And I was fully prepared, man. I had all my warrant officer language down. I knew exactly what I was going to say. And uh, everything was going good. And he asks me, the group commander, what is your leadership philosophy? And I was completely unprepared for the question. And I gave him in retrospect, kind of a, a JV response. And it was lead from the front, lead by example, these kinds of things, which are totally accurate. And those are important in terms of leadership. And he say, said the same thing. He said, Nick, I, I hear what you're saying and you're not wrong at all, but I think you can do better than that. I would expect that answer from like an E5 or a second lieutenant. You're a senior E7 that wants to be an SF warrant officer. And I think you got more. And I said, Okay, Roger that, sir. And uh, I, I, it messed with me, man. So I hit the books, hit the Google, started looking for references, and I found John Maxwell. And ordered a bunch of his stuff. I showed up overseas. I read a bunch of his stuff and continue to do so to this day. And what I like about his his philosophy is it's very simple. You can literally Google images, John C. Maxwell, Five Loves of Leadership, and just get a one slider that shows what it is. And that alone gives some pretty substantial guidance. If you read in depth, you obviously get more, but it's a great foundation to build from. And I won't explain the entire thing. I recommend anyone out there interested in leadership to, to check it out. But at the entry level of it, it's really about being a boss and where people do what you tell them to do because they have to based on your position, right? That's the lowest level of leadership. The goal is to expand above and beyond that as quickly as humanly possible. At the top of it, your ability to influence and inspire as a leader is based on respect. It's based on your values. It's based on who you are and how you live your life. And just saying those words out loud to you right now like gives me goosebumps just to think of how powerful that actually is, right? I am able to inspire and influence people not by screaming and yelling, right? Not by talking down to them just by who I am and my actions and how I live. That is the, you know, the pinnacle. And that is what I strive for, you know, daily. And as a warrant officer in SF, it's what we refer to as a commandless, selfless, thankless position because of what we do and how we do it. So you have to be very careful not to overstep into the lanes of the other two leaders on the team, one being the captain, one being the team sergeant. The team sergeant, by design, is the most influential person on that team. He's the one that the guys look up to, they answer to. He's the one that knows their strengths, their weaknesses, and he begins developing them as individuals. The warrant officer's job is to be looking at the ODA as a whole, as a system, and increasing readiness and capacity long-term over a stretch of time. So how, and I struggled with this, how do you, how do you lead as a warrant officer when I, I really can't get too aggressive in 
knickknacky details of individuals. Even though I love that, it's it can create some substantial confusion on a team. And I realized that through just my production, which is in the middle of John Maxwell's levels of leadership, through production, you're able to influence and inspire that way. The guys may not be interacting with me directly one-on-one day-to-day, but they're able to see what I'm doing. They're able to see how I'm doing it. And they're able to see the fruits of the labor when we are able to go do that training concept in Key West, or we're able to go over to, you know, Amman and do something cool over there. Those, the, the fruits of that labor eventually come to fruition and they can look back and say, oh, wow, you know, when Chief was hacking away on all these weird memos and products and all the PowerPoint bullshit that we want nothing to do with, that was to get us here to do this thing, which is actually pretty cool. You know, whether that's a training event or an operation or, or whatever it is. So my focus really is on what I'm able to provide the team as a whole and what I'm able to provide individuals when appropriate. Well, and again, and then, the entire goal is to get to that, you know, get to that respect level, which then bleeds over into just how I live my daily life. You know, the importance of my family, my integrity, et cetera. Well, and, and that's level four that you're talking about when you say doing things for people individually when the time comes. Uh, and, and I don't know if you know that, but we just did the entire chain. Uh, we, we talked about steps one through five and it's, it's hard to not do that because of each level building on the other level in order to explain the fifth level, you have to explain four and three. And I think that you have put that into your ideas. The reason I say you put it into your ideas because you could have just gone back to the teams, done your job, uh, done whatever you needed to do, retired, whatever. You've decided to go to warrant officer. Uh, now, you went to dive school, and you and I talked about this. And, and I want to talk about this because you went to combat diver school. I went to dive school when I was stationed over in Hawaii. It's not an easy school. Not at all. <laughs> And especially when you go through, and believe me, I've watched some videos of you where you have a special fin for your right leg and all those kind of things. This is, it's no joke. What makes you want to go do that? You've proven yourself, Nick. You, why do you need to prove yourself again? Well, I mean, I think macro, it's it's important to constantly be looking towards that next ridgeline and prevent ourselves from becoming content with any successes we have to continue to strive and look to grow. Ironically, when I was in the warrant officer course about halfway through, you know, there's, there's, there's guys from all other groups. And I linked up with a bunch of my buddies that I went through the Q course with that I hadn't seen in years. And so we're on dive teams and we just started talking about, you know, maritime ops and going through dive school and that stuff. And I kind of started talking to them about, Hey, I'd like to get in the water and just kind of try out some of this stuff. And they were all about it. Um, it's nothing that we ended up actually doing. The schedule down there during that course is kind of crazy. But I had an inkling of, man, this is considered the most physically and mentally challenging school in the United States military. Um, and I was I was looking for that next thing. I mean, I was currently going through my next thing, right? There hadn't been uh, an SF amputee warrant officer before. So I was already going through that, but I was already kind of looking over the horizon towards that next challenge. As ironic as it would turn out, I was assigned to a dive team when I got when I graduated the war course. And I show up, I get told what team I'm going to, 
you know, and ODAs, any team that ends in the number five is, uh, is a dive team. So I get told the team I'm going to, I automatically know it's a dive team. I said, okay, this would be interesting. And I probably had the same feeling every SF guy has when they get told they're going to a dive team. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Let's, let's go do this. Cause you just know it's going to suck. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough. And I had the same feeling. I get to this, I get, I get back to, to um, Fort Campbell, back to my unit. And um, I sit down with my company command team and they tell me I'm going to a dive team. I said, yeah, I'm tracking, sir. He said, and with, within the first couple minutes, we have no expectation of you going to dive school was what they told me. And I said, okay, well, um, that I'm was a try mistake. And um, they didn't, they didn't mean it negatively. They, they, they literally didn't think it was more administratively possible than it was physically possible. They were looking at it like, we don't think you're allowed to go to dive school. Okay. Uh, forget about the fact that, that you only have one leg and, and, that school has an attrition rate of anywhere from like 20 to 50%. It's just unlikely. They were looking at it more in terms of an admin. I had the same conversation with my battalion command team just a couple of days later. And I said, I'm going to try to see if I can't go. And they said, okay, go for it. Obviously I managed to get myself down there. Um, but to answer your question, man, it was, it's an obligation of the job. When you get put on a dive team, you have to be a combat diver, especially if you're in a leadership position, guys that have gone through dive school will have a really, really hard time respecting John Maxwell, a leader that has not done the same thing because it is that brutal and it's that difficult. And it really is what binds dive teams together. And it's also what makes them very, very successful. Um, even if only anecdotally, dive teams are high-performing ODAs, regardless of the, if they're anywhere near a body of water. And it's because it's just an additional filter beneath a filter, beneath another filter, that creates a product at the end of the day that most don't get through. And when you take a bunch of guys that have that level of willingness to die for the, either the mission or for their buddy that they're attached to, and you lump them together in one team, you create a team that is very effective across the entire spectrum of what we do. So it was an obligation. I didn't look at it any other way than any other guy that got sent to a dive team would have. I'm on a dive team. I need to go to dive school. I need to figure out how to do it. And I need to go down there and knock it out. Favorite part of dive school? Uh, graduating. Yeah, <laughs> by far. <five. laughs> yeah most guys, they go to dive school and I've been to Key West a few times, you know, you got to Wall Street and it's a, it's a good time. And, you know, dive school typically is work hard, play hard. And once you get past a certain point in the course, they let you go out on the weekends and guys tend to go burn off that steam and have a really good time. So they've got some really great fun stories about going to dive school. When I went to dive school in May of 2020, we were just peaking in COVID and, we were completely locked down to the compound for the entire six weeks that we were there. It was like I was back in basic training. We couldn't go anywhere and do anything. Um, so I don't have any good time in, you know, dive school stories. Um, graduating was probably the greatest moment because it was over. Uh, I, I was trailblazing or not trailblazing, but blade running uh, for six weeks. At, at any point, it could have gone the other way at a you know a dozen different points. Uh, throughout the course, certainly some of the milestones along the way, you know, getting through jock up night, getting through one man, you know, kind of these, these brutal gates that you have to get through. 
those those were good moments. But at the at the end of the course, shaking my instructor's hands um, was was the highlight of the course for me. Worst part of the course, uh, I would have to say, uh, underwater problem solving. Uh, that's what they called it when I went through getting sharks. So, worst part for you? Worst part was uh, the one-man competency test, which is what tends to get most people dropped from the course. Um, during that test alone, you'll you'll lose anywhere from you know a third to half the class. My class was no different. It, it made it exceptionally challenging for me uh, because of the lack of leg and you know you do that test and i'm not going to talk in detail about it but you know you, you end up in kind of a kneeling position um that allows you to really relax most of your body and then work through these problems that you have to deal with i don't have a knee to kneel on so uh, after a few hours of trying to figure out what position they could put me in that would still meet the standard and the intent it was in a seated position um which sounds like it would be maybe more comfortable, but because you have these tanks on your back, in order to stay upright, I had to have my core engaged the entire time. And when you're on a breath hold, the idea is to move as minimal amount of muscles as humanly possible, because anytime you move anything, you burn up oxygen, which is a valuable resource when you're at the bottom of a pool and you can't breathe. Um, it just made it that much more strenuous for me. You know, you, you get three attempts to pass that test. Um, I blacked out underwater on my first two. So my last attempt was, you know, the Hail Mary pass. And, uh, you know, obviously I made it because I'm here today as a, as a diver. But it was uh, it was really close. It was really close. I was the last guy to take the test on that last day. And, um, you know, I, I, I end up getting to the shallow end and I drag myself out of the pool. And I'm, I'm pretty much on. I don't know where I am. I got no peripheral vision. <laughs> I'm waiting for my senses to come back to me. And, uh, you know, the entire class was there. It, it was a pretty cool moment. Uh, certainly something I'm glad to, to get past. And I, I can't talk about dive school without talking about my teammates uh, that trained me up prior to going. And those are the guys that got me through it. I had not a clue what I was doing. And all I did was listen to what they told me to do uh, over the series of, you know, a few months and then work my ass off every single day to get my breath hold and my endurance capacity up as high as humanly possible. But without, without the guys that I still work with today, it flat out wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I, I would think even like you were saying, I would think ditching and dawning would be a pretty tough situation for you, especially with how you have to be seated to move all the gear and everything. Did that hold true to you? Yeah, it was also tough. Yeah. Um, it's tough to rack and stack some of these kind of gated events because they were all really, really hard. Um, once I got my technique, my technique down to ditch and don, it, it was pretty smooth. What got real interesting was once we got into big blue, once we got into the ocean and actually started doing navigation dives, yeah. uh, because with with the different balance of my fin length and stroke and power, you know, I drift. And if I'm doing a surface swim, I'm able to see where I'm trying to go and I can correct myself. When you're underwater, you just have a compass and you just you're just going off of that off of that azimuth. Right. So it, it, it was a challenge. Um, and I give the school a lot of credit because the fin that I trained up on and the fin that I used through the first half of the course 
um, was substandard equipment. It was what I was given by my prosthetic guy here, and that's what I used, and that's what I made work. But they they knew based on how little propulsion I had from my prosthetic side that when it came to do nav dives, I was going to have a serious problem, not just making time, but staying on course. And right. it's a, those are graded events. You have to be able to do that. The short version is they reached out to a nonprofit um, that goes down there annually and they work with wounded veterans, particularly amputees, and they use the Safuo pool as a train up prior to taking them into the ocean. They reached out to this nonprofit and uh, they said, hey, we got this guy down there as an amputee. This is what he's working with. And he's going to have a really, really hot time once we get in the water or in the ocean. So they dispatched the team the next day. They flew four guys down there with a truckload of equipment. And I spent about six hours in the pool that night trying different setups. And they gave me an entirely different setup that almost equally matched my fin length and that, stroke and power. That's what and I was, was thinking. It's, it's almost like a big gorilla fin almost. Uh, it, but it seems super flexible. Yeah. So the fin that I use now and the fin that those guys outfitted me with is actually a free diving fin. So they're, they're really long, right. so they call them jet fins. That's what I wear on my prosthetic side. And I'll wear just a standard rocket fin on my sound side. So the length isn't quite even, but the amount of power I get from my prosthetic side, once I got into that was about times 20, given what I was working with before. And I'll tell you, man, once I strapped that thing on, I, it was like I had a rocket shoved up my ass while I was on the water because my, my sound leg had gotten so strong because it needed to, to be able to move. Right. That once I had something that equaled it, I was flying. So those guys, uh, they came in and they really saved the day. And, um, you know, I had, I really struggled with just allowing the assistance from them because I really didn't want, you know, any extra help. And I was insistent on that. And they, they didn't. They weren't going to cut me any corners. And I sat down with the commander down there and he said, listen, dude, we're not giving you any kind of an edge. You're still going to be at a severe disadvantage. We all know that. We're just trying to get you the equipment that you should have already come down here on. We're just right. trying to get you, you know, level, as level as we can with everybody else. This isn't, you know, a, a bonus for you. So I said, okay, cool. And, you know, those guys are great. They actually have a their annual dive that's coming up here. It's, they're called Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge. And uh, their their link is actually on my website. An amazing organization. They're going down there, uh, I think, in a few weeks. I'm un unable to be able to make it. But um, great dudes, unbelievable mission, and I owe them a lot of gratitude for helping me out down there. So on your surface swims, were you using the same fin on uh, or how did you – because those surface swims are they're a bitch. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the graded surface swim we had to do with the earlier portion of the course, the 3K surface swim, I did with my original fin that I went down there on, which, again, really only served as kind of a rudder um, than it did any propulsion. I had, I had done 3K open water service swims during my train up multiple times. So that was actually an event that I, I knew I could do. And I, had, I had no worry about it. What I didn't take into consideration was the smoke session that they put us through yeah. immediately <laughs> prior to splashing us. And then the buoy that we have attached to us, it's a safety consideration. Every diver has this buoy attached to them and it's on this long line and it's connected to your body. Well, the line of the buoy 
at about 500,000 meters or so into this swim, got wrapped around my prosthetic fin. And in my attempt to get it off, I ripped my prosthetic off of my body. So then what an event that turned into a guaranteed layup turned into an absolute disaster because not only do I no longer have that little rudder control and that little Finding Nemo little boost I had, I basically had what felt like a, you know, a five gallon bucket attached to my waist that was just trying to pull me to the bottom of the ocean. It turned into, it turned into kind of a shit show. Um, I wasn't the last guy to finish. I was the second to last guy to finish, which is kind of amazing. The guy that finished after me didn't make it through the course. Um, but I got to the shore, I got to the shore and I was done. And thank God it was the last thing we had to do that day. If we had to do a single thing beyond that, I don't think I would have been able to physically do anything. I was pretty smoked, man. Proudest moment in the military when you graduated from there? From dive school? Yeah. Proudest moment in the military? Um, no, I'd say the proudest moment in the military to this point was uh, the day I stepped foot back in Afghanistan, you know, as a one-legged dude. That was a pretty big moment. Um, you know, there were just so many people that were behind me that some had reservations, whether out of fear or love or reservations out of, you know, whether it was possible that were supporting me anyway. I made a lot of sacrifices. You know, my, my now wife was with me at the time and uh, I, you know, I punted everything. I punted social engagements, nothing. And I did that for, you know, over a year and it was eat, sleep, train, and that was it. And, you know, I'm blessed and fortunate that she understood that and stood by me through that as we were just really dating at the time. So, you know, her, and, uh, and my teammates and my coaches and my doctors and, you know, the staff just goes on my prosthetist that were all working really hard uh, to help me when I got off that, you know, C-130 in Afghanistan 2015 for the first time as an amputee. You know, all those people were, were there with me. It was, it was pretty cool. Well, and the reason I ask you if it was your proudest, because when you and I first started talking, you, you mentioned it specifically. And, and that stuck out to me with everything that you've done with the languages that you speak with every, that it was so important to you that, that we talk about that. It was, uh, that was pretty interesting to me. I mean, you're right. Not a lot of guys go do that. Not a lot of, but not a lot of guys go over there, uh, with above you, above the knee amputation. So, it was interesting to me that of all the things that we could talk about, you mentioned that one specifically. Um, so what's next for uh, the machine? <laughs> yeah, good question, man. Uh, myself and my team um, were just back from this latest deployment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm back to work and I'm looking I'm looking forward to what our team has coming up and, you know, planning planning that waiting for the rest of the guys to get back. Um, my wife and I just had our second boy eight weeks ago. Congratulations. So that's awesome. Thank you very much. He's doing great. Mama bear is doing great. We also have a four year old. So I'm really enjoying spending the time I have with them now. And, you know, I'm, I, as, as a warrant officer and as kind of a long range thinking analytical person, you know, I'm kind of looking at, at what is in the future for me. Um, I drafted a manuscript, which is currently going through the DOD review and concurrence process. Uh, 
Um, it's not an autobiography and I don't really tell many people about this, but that the project even exists, but those I do, I'm pretty quick to tell them. It's not, it's not an autobiography. It's not, it's not the Nick Lavery story. Um, it's about what you and I have spent quite a lot of time here talking about. It's really the, the process of me, you know, getting back to a team and the methodology and the tools that I used to do that. And then retrospectively analyzing, um, to try to put something down to help that next guy or gal that's that's looking to overcome some kind of adversity and and thinks it's far fetched or impossible because uh, it's not and there is a way to get there and I feel obligated to um, to pass that on in the best way I can so I'm excited about that really again just about about helping that next person out and um, you know I got still got another five six years left of active duty time something I'm I'm fortunate to have, and that brings me to 20 and, you know, we'll see what happens beyond that. But dude, this profession, man, it's a privilege to be able to do this. You know, no one has a right to to do this. And it's one that you have to earn every single day. And I'm just fortunate to be in a profession that I love and more importantly, work alongside the caliber of guys that I get the privilege to work with every single day. It's, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool thing to be able to say and live, you know, when you love what you do, you, you never work a day in your life. And there are some days I feel like I'm working, but on most days, you know, <laughs> I'm blessed to be able to do what I do. So I'm going to enjoy the ride while I can and take as much from it as I can. Ever think about uh, consulting whenever you're done? I've thought about a lot of stuff, man. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of team guys, you know, can go into that consultant advisory kind of role, and, you know, based on the amount of experiences we've been through and, and, and methodologies to, to move from A to B, there's a lot of, there's a lot of translation into the private sector, into government work. Um, so yeah, it's something I've thought of. It's something I really haven't ironed out because I'm, I'm really enjoying the now, <clears throat> but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if maybe I go down that road. Yeah. I think it's certainly an option. Let's let everyone know about machinenick.com. Yeah, man. Website um, is up and, uh, you know, it's, it's just an easy one-stop shop to go to for some of these principles. Um, most importantly, the, uh, the nonprofits that I work alongside of and support, you can find them all there as well. And it's a way to reach out to me directly for questions, issues, uh, the inbox tends to fill up pretty fast, but you know, I work myself backwards in time. Sometimes that takes, you know, two, three weeks or a month or two, depending on what's going on. But, uh, I make it a point to carve out some time every single day to respond to people. And, you know, we talked about this. It's, it's an unusual place to be in when you live this kind of quiet professional mindset to have people come out to you and can you help me with this? Um, but it's something that I've, I've grown to enjoy because the impact is really difficult to replace. So website's up, feel free to check it out. Um, and then, yeah, any questions that come up or anything you just want to talk about four o'clock in the morning, you just want to vent, Hey, there's a way to get a hold of me and I will respond. Nick, I got to tell you, man, this has been a huge honor, not only to meet you, hear your story, but that you would grace me with your time to be on this show. Uh, you are truly, truly an inspiration to a lot of people. And 
I don't think that we could thank you enough for what you've done for this country and for what you've done for the community at large. So I think that's going to be it. Guys, make sure you check this guy out, machinenick.com. It's a very cool website. You'll get to see him going through his phases, through his training, all different kinds of things. You can leave questions for him there. You can get in contact with him. If you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. And you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, every week you stop by this show because the best stories are true. That's going to be it for tonight, guys. That's Nick. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one. We'll see you later, guys. Bye.